Hi, and welcome to this special compilation episode of The Trumpet Guru's Hang. As I'm recording this, it's the beginning of 2022, and boy, has 2021 had its share of interesting events. 2021 was the second year of producing this show. You know, I've been fortunate enough to have some really great guests, and as a result, our audience has grown significantly. And for that, I am extremely grateful. 2022 also saw the inclusion of the popular Sound Off segment, where my guests share with you their advice for producing the best trumpet sound possible. This segment is sponsored by my good friend, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. Now, one reason I added this segment is because of the overwhelming response to a question from the Robinson's Remedies rapid fire round. And that question is, what do you think is the most underrated aspect of trumpet playing? Now, most people responded with some comment related to sound. So if it's underrated by most players and educators, I felt that it was important enough to give the subject a little extra time in the spotlight. So as we wrap up this year, I thought it would be useful and entertaining to put all of the responses together in one place. We'll start back with the very first official segment, which features the phenomenal Joshua Kaufman. This is the way I try to explain it as clearly as I can. If, a if, you're, if you're working, let's say, with a clarinet player, okay, and they're, they're warming up and things are not usually happening, what's the first thing they go to do? They take the reed off and they start messing with the reed. Well, why do they start messing with the reed? Whether they're wetting it or they start filing or doing whatever, they're trying to get it so that it vibrates optimally on their instrument because that vibration of the reed is what causes the sound. And the better the reed is and all this other stuff, the better the sound will be created. They're just blowing on the reed. Well, our reed is attached, and I know Bergeron says this all the time. And so for me, my goal every day is to make sure that my reed will vibrate as effectively, as quickly, and efficiently as possible. With the smallest amount of air, I want to sound like that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm into the James Stamp stuff a lot, um, but I start my day with um, nothing but air attacks. And I do these things called, uh, they're just quiet long tones. Basically, I call them whisper tones. And I start my, fir my first notes of the day, every day, are a mouthpiece and a horn, pick it up, breath attack on a G. And I, I will play it as softly as I possibly can to where there's almost no vibration, just sound. And some days, like if I'm beat up, if I'm, like let's say I had a hard gig last night, it might take a few minutes for the sound to start, but I'm not fighting it. The physical benefit of that is that a lot of us, after playing hard, your aperture might be a little blown open or swollen or whatever. By, by just blowing the air through the aperture, your body will naturally find home base. And this, this will help you avoid the paralysis by analysis because it will you're, 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 let your body just subconsciously fix it. So your aperture will kind of come back into focus. It will figure out how to create the sound. It might take longer. Some days I pick up the horn. It takes a little while for that vibration to start, but I never force the sound. That's the first thing. Your sound can never be forced. It's so easy to pick up the trumpet when you've had a bad day or you start warming up. It doesn't feel great. You just go, ta. No, I'm not about that. I'm going and trying to get the sound to spin as quickly as I can. If you can, because the second you have to force the reed, your tops to vibrate, it's already a losing battle or your sound won't be as um, uh, efficient as possible. Now, that being said, because I don't, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. That being said, if we have the reed vibrating effectively, the other part about this that I think really helps the sound is to make sure that our 
really understanding that our bodies are the instrument and the trumpet is just a reflection of what we're doing. Right. And every, every note has a certain frequency. That's why a equals 440. So again, I'm a stamp guy. So I do mouthpiece buzzing and stuff like that. I don't obsess about it. I don't want to go into like the anti buzzer pro buzzer thing, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I play the mouthpiece. It was good enough for doc Severinsen. And he was the one that kind of showed me this stuff. So if I can buzz, let's say like an etude or just a small little nursery rhymes where I started. Uh, if I can buzz that on the mouthpiece, obviously my lips are vibrating to all those frequencies, right? And we're the instrument. We understand that. Now, that being said, I know that I don't pick up the trumpet and go, I know that the way we, I, and so it's just important to know as a side thing for people watching this is like, when I go to play the mouthpiece, that's not the way you play the trumpet. It's a different thing, but it's a very useful tool. And so, in other words, long story short, if I can buzz in tune, let's say a C with the mouthpiece, and I go to put it in the horn, that's always going to be the most resonant sound because you are in tune with the actual vibration frequency of that pitch. And the reason why I found that out is I couldn't figure out why some of my students had these funky sounds. So I had them take the mouthpiece off and like they're playing a G in the staff and you go to take the mouthpiece off and they're like buzzing on an E flat, some of them. And I was like, oh, they're not even close. Again, not saying we buzz to play, but having that relationship of what it feels like here and then putting it in the horn and just exhaling and let the vibration get created that way. Um, I have found a huge improvement in making sure that when I'm playing in the dead center of that pitch, it's just more resonant. So I, I've kind of been um, really big into like pitch bends. And so I'll play the play like, you know, G, F sharp, G, and then I'll play G and I'll go down to the F sharp. No, bend. I don't like traveling between the notes just from pitch center to pitch center. Play G, bend to the F sharp and back. And usually when you return to that G, and this is kind of similar to like the Adams um, or Mr. Adams uh, lead pipe routine or his little exercises, like usually when you return to the starting frequency, it's way more resonant because you're, you are now in the resonating, you're, you're, you're like right where the sweet spot is for the note. And so what I've realized over time is that my, in order to create my sound better, my pitch was directly related to how good my sound was. And when I started playing in the real fat spot of the note, their sweet spot, my sound just got so much more broad and resonant. And my tuning slide came in and my pitch got better and the trumpet just became easier because I didn't realize that like for a lot of my life, I was blowing the pitch down and that's why my slide was always further out than what I wanted it to be and this and that, all these other things. And so I think from a technical side, I know you said it's supposed to be fast, sound off. Um, I apologize. Um, but from a technical side, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And then again, I still believe that our, our ears are our best guide. Having that example this is kind of like my wall of heroes and it's i've got them everywhere but like some of my biggest heroes in music are around my office those are the sounds i'm hearing uh when i go to you know pick up e-flat trumpet and i'm hearing like rolf smedvig or or or, or you know hulk on hardenberger or something and i go to play jazz and i hear dizzy or roy or play lead and i hear chuck finley or something having that crystal clear example of what you want to sound like that goes a long way. And some cats, you got to really be honest with yourself. Some guys might say they dig this player, or that player, but it, it's amazing that their connection with their sounds aren't nearly as deep as what, you, what, what they think they are. And so I'm talking about a super deep connection with that tonal quality and having a good example of what it sounds like. 
and then being able to recreate that. And like I said, with the technical thing, with my little mouthpiece buzzing and, and whisper tones and stuff, as long as the trumpet's taken care of and my reed is doing what it's supposed to be, then you put two and two together and, and there you go. And so th th that's kind of my advice for, for in, from a technical side and from a, a more musical side of how to improve your sound. And just in general, something that trumpet players don't do a lot, it's super underrated, is practicing softly. It's really easy to blow loud and, and to fight the trumpet. Uh, you know, two instruments in particular that you can't fight is the piccolo trumpet and rotary trumpet. You can't force on either of those instruments. And so I like playing both of them quite a bit and playing them at very soft volumes because if you can get stuff to respond very quietly, adding a little bit of volume of air to that to make it louder won't be any problem. But so many guys can play really loud and they lose all their control when they play, you know, super, super soft. And so there's a huge benefit to just getting the, everything super focused and getting the vibration to start with as little effort as possible. Um, so I think personally for me, that has gone a long way. Um, but again, I don't believe that anything should be dogmatic in nature. Everything I said might be the total opposite of what you do and it might not work for you. Um, but for me, it's certainly worked and it certainly has helped a few of my students um, improve their sounds as well. Ryan Quigley. I, I mean, I think... Um... I think consistency of sound is really important. I think um, I, I I don't think people should worry or concentrate too much on range until they've got a good consistency of sound going on, you know, throughout the range that they already have, you know. So I think if you've got like an amazing consistency of sound up to a top C, you know, you're going to be really employable, you know. So, you know, consistency of sound, accuracy um, and good time, you know, are the things that I would want to I would want people to be concentrating on if they're just you know especially especially if you want to be like a commercial studio musician you know um you've got you've got to play in time and you've got to play in tune and you've got to play with a good sound so they're the things that you really need to work on you know and, and accuracy of course um so yeah just I think don't ever don't ever um sacrifice sound for range I think would be some quite good advice because I think people want to maybe walk a bit before they can run sometimes with playing high, you know, and it's, it's not, it's not quite as important as people maybe think it is to be a commercial trumpet player. Um, obviously we, you, you need to have a kind of good working range, certainly up to top G for sure. Um, but if you don't, if you've got an amazing working range up to like a really solid top C, top D, uh, but it's always accurate. It's always got a great sound. Like I say, you're really employable, you know? Um, so I don't know if that answered the. I don't yeah. know if that was the question you asked, but that's yeah. well, no, that, that, that some somehow that's where I ended up. Okay, well, that's where you ended up. So that's that's where we ended up. <laughs> you're, you're you're driving the bus on this one, buddy. Raúl Agraz. Well, if you, I I I you know I engage everybody to listen good trumpet players and really good and good music, you know, and if you find somebody in particular that you really like his sound. For example, I love Doc Severin's, you know, in, in, on his prime, you know. I always trying to imitate uh, that type of sound, trying the, the fullness of his sound. And if you really, that's, that's my main uh, uh, recommendation. I mean, trying to find somebody that you really like and trying to imitate, you know, imitation is not bad, you know. Is especially if something like sound is important. So uh, 
trying just trying to copy that sound and, and trying to live uh, to that sound every day. You know, that's that's my main recommendation. And of course, you know, you find out how in, in, in of course long nose and 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 sometimes just trying to figure it out the the, the type of equipment that you're using. Uh, uh, if you, you're not getting that sound with the models that you're using, just trying to figure it out, another cup or another backboard. And as soon as you get it, you know, trying to stick to that and, and not being a safari looking for mouthpieces and, and, and just, just figure, just figure yourself. I mean, trying, trying to, I mean, trying to, uh, not prepare, just trying to, uh, learn how to produce that sound. Uh, as soon as you get it in your in your brain and your mind, you know, that's yeah. that's my main recommendation. You know, just trying to figure it out. Uh, the best sound that you can find online now that everybody's is looking for everything, you know, online, or or listen to a good trumpet player in a concert and just dig about that trumpet player. If you love the sound, if you love the way that he play, and uh, and just copy that, just copy that and, and, and trying to, as soon as you get it, trying to improve from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you, you imitate and then you make it your own. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. David Dash. Yeah. I would say probably the first and last is listening. Uh, just finding one or maybe two people that you're sort of obsessed with that person's sound and all you want in life is to sound like that person. Um, uh, I certainly did that, uh, and I think that's where it all comes from. I mean, music is a language, and uh, trying to describe, I found that often people try to describe sounds, and the words that they, they'll use one word, like I'll use a word like bright, you know, and you use a word like bright, and we have a totally different understanding of what that word means. Right. The, the language just doesn't work that well. You know, you can try, but like, it's got to be it's got to be heard and, and maybe shown, you know? So I think, I think that's where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. So like when you're working with your students uh, at the school, uh, do you have like specific uh, assignments or exercises that, that you'll take people through to help them to, to kind of codify their sounds? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say that the first thing that I always have students do is when they're playing any new piece, solo piece or ensemble piece or, uh, you know, jazz combo, jazz ensemble, whatever, is, uh, is again, listening. And ideally, really finding like three or four or five different recordings and, and identifying what you like or don't like about each one and kind of picking one that you're sort of obsessed with and just listening obsessively until it until it becomes second nature. To, to you just you memorize that sound. That sound is in your mind all the time. Um, so I would start there. I also use a number of tools to help people um, recognize when there are areas to be improved. Uh, so, for example, um, I, I love TE Tuner. Uh, TE Tuner has a, a number of different functions which are fantastic. Uh, I have students play with drones all the time uh, because uh, I found in my own playing and, and for other people as well, if you don't play with drones pretty frequently, your sense of intonation can drift. So usually sharp for us as trumpet players, but not always. And um, no matter what, you just got to keep refining and refining and refining it. So drones are really good. Tuners are okay also, but I think drones are superior for pitch um, uh, valuation and, and uh, 
like refining your sense of pitch. I also uh, got a, uh, some great tips from Mark Anyway from the San Francisco Symphony. He came and gave a class at UNCSA several years ago, and he introduced a, an app that he likes called RoadRec. And RoadRec has a function where you can record yourself and listen back at half speed. Uh, now, RoadRec does not offer that function anymore, but you can do the same thing on TE Tuner. And what, what I've found is that there is almost always something to be improved that the student just didn't hear before. You know, I, I hear it because, like, I've made those mistakes already. <laughs> so I could, like, perceive that, you know, the triple tongue is, like, not even or, or whatever the issue is. But, like, they don't hear it yet. But if you, if you record them and actually show them and they, and they listen back at half speed, they'll hear it right away. Um, another trick, another level of obsessiveness is to uh, put a metronome on and then, and then uh, do the uh, half-speed listening. And usually that adds just another element of, uh, uh, of recognizing possible time issues. So I think the technology, as you were saying, can be really helpful. The, the, uh, when you're talking about using the metronome uh, and, and finding time issues, do you, you think that, that there's a correlation between time and, and the sound? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all part of, you know, if you this, like, umbrella of sound... It, I think it includes uh, time and articulation and, and volume for sure and intonation. You know, it all it's all kind of together. You know, so but but it's I find that it can be a sort of um, intuitive thing that you you think about sound and you kind of like dream of the sound usually through listening or your own creativity. Um, but those other aspects of what you sound like. Like that's a little easier to be objective and to actually like point to like okay this is what's really happening here uh, and let's let's fix this thing and that's part of that's just part of the music just like anything else is. Okay, cool. Some some great great tips. I think I have TE Tuner. I, I never explored any of those. Uh, I mean, I guess basically. Oh, check it out. I mean, yeah. there are other weird things. There's an analysis function where. Um, you can see the history of your pitch. So one thing that I noticed uh, frequently, this was a mistake that I made for a long time, which is, again, why I can recognize it in my students. Um, I, tend, I would scoop. Like, the very front of the note would be low, and then it would be right, you know? And so if you're just looking at a tuner, you think you're good because, like, maybe you get to the pitch. Mm -hmm. But if you can actually see the history of your pitch and it's low, like, every time, <laughs> then you know you got a problem. Uh, Tunable is another app that does that. Cool. Well, I'm going to have to start playing with that a lot more. Melvin Jones. Okay. So I, I tell guys all the time that you want a basic trumpet tone when it's all said and done. A lot of times I reference the same reference that was given to me by Prof, and that was his teacher, uh, Adolf Herseth from the Chicago Symphony, um, to just this big, bold, and bright, like you can hear every inch of his tone, but he was sitting in the back of the orchestra. And, you know, once you can hear how that carries over the orchestra to the back of the symphony hall, you know, just that idea, you can develop that sound and be able to carry that sound throughout the range of the instrument and throughout the different uh, like volume levels, then that's when you've really discovered it. One of the tips that I always give my students has to do again with the tongue. Um, our prophet always say the tongue is neutral. It should remain neutral. The way I translate that is by telling them students that you want your tongue to kind of lay down and create a bed for the air to travel over. If you think about your mouth as, um, as, as existing as a circle, within that circle, your tongue re generally resides somewhere bottom towards the middle of it. And what you do to try to control that is you arch your tongue or you lower your tongue. And all of that has to do with what you're saying if you want to control that. 
Like I'm, there are a bunch of brilliant people that can control that. What I'm about it, and that's that's amazing. I was not one of those people. I had to learn what I was saying to get around. So when we talk about dialect, I tell people: you say "ah," that drops your tongue to a certain position. You say "ooh," you get a position. "E," you get a position. And there are a bunch of other syllables. But by by using Prav's thing to keep your tongue neutral while you're doing those things, that is the trick. And that is when you learn how to control your tone throughout the different ranges. Because the mistake that most people make is in trying to play up high, they arch their tongue up too high. And once that tongue reaches the roof of your mouth, you tap out. There's nowhere else for the air to go. Your sound is gone. And if you're too close to the top with your E setting, then you have a thin tone up top. So what I teach people all the time is to learn how to work with a middle or more neutral setting and still say, ah, ooh, e. All of those different syllables, it's like six that, that generally are taught without extending this to the point that it changes your sound. And once they discover that, that, that generally gives them a really good sound. Again, that's if they're using enough wind to support that. But the idea is to, is to allow your tongue space to move more than anything else. And that generally seems to create a much more favorable tone on the instrument. Tyler Yeager. Uh, well, number one is listening. You have to be willing to listen, you know, until you that sound is conceptualized in your head. You know, for I mean, my, luckily for me as a young man, you know, you're just learning at that point when you're 12, 13, 14, and that's the sound you hear. It's a little bit harder when you get older, but really just sitting there and listening and let that sound and when, when I talk about just listening to the sound, it's not just even that. It's listening to the articulation, listening how he interprets a line, listening to how he phrases a line. When you start listening to all of those things, all of those nuances come into your playing, which eventually turns into a replication of a sound, and then you can make it more authentic by doing it your own way. Uh, so for sound concept, that's what I would first say. Get a favorite recording of whoever, Docs Everson, Maynard, Bill Chase, Jerry Hay, Wayne, any of them, you know, and just listen to what they're doing and how they're doing it. Yeah. 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 I think that's, you know, when you can get to the point where you can identify a player by their sound, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's like I, I can, I've listened to so much Jerry Hay and I've listened to, to yep. so much of, of that sort of stuff over the years. It's like, as soon as I would hear recordings, like, yeah, that, that's Jerry. Yeah. And, you know, and those are the things that uh, it's a good mark for the player, you know, to, to say that their sound is recognizable, but it's also then that good ear training for you and, you know, helping to develop your overall concepts. Of course, if I could sound like Jerry Hay, I, you know, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'd be drinking wine. Like I Jerry. would be drinking wine. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Except I'm drinking Mountain Dew. So <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm drinking coffee today. So yeah. uh, it, it's it's too early to 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 tap into the good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> not right. with that attitude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ashley Killam and Carrie Blosser. So uh, and especially I think Carrie, this is going to be an interesting one uh, for you because you are in that situation where you you are the the chameleon and and you know going from a classically trained player to now you know doing a lot of uh, non classical music. Uh, you know, so uh, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, your, your, your advice, basically like your advice to people about sound concepts. Yeah. 
So I, I think I, I start, I think for me, the most important thing is in like the morning and my warmups and, and what I'm doing is to get the, just a really awesome core sound and like playing like, you know, Stevie Wonder highlights the night before and then having to get up at 5.15 in the morning like I did yesterday and go play Sousa marches. Um, having, like getting myself back to like kind of a good tone without any grit and gore and like all of that, like, you know, all that sizzle poppy things. So I do a lot of pitch bends and lead pipe buzzing on its own just to kind of get like a really um, clear tone kind of in my middle range. And then as I'm kind of chameleon-ing, chameleon if that's a word, um, to different styles is I'm making sure that I'm listening to good um, kind of examples of what I want that sound to be. Um, I do play a little bit of a diff, I have a totally different like horn and mouthpiece that I play in my, um, you know, like in the rock band that I play in. And then I have a different setup for when I do kind of the classical marches to kind of like a difference, a little bit of a different setup for when I play in like uh, brass quintet and solo stuff. So for me, a little bit of change of equipment just so that the full feeling of the horn is just a little different. It helps trigger my like mentalness of like, oh, this is the sound that I want. Um, but it, for me, starting my day and making sure that I, I'm getting back to just kind of like my normal sound and then kind of branching off from there. Cool. And how about you? I'm not a military musician. Uh, <laughs> I actually, um, to be honest, this past year, I took a lot of time off um, playing just because of like pandemic with everything cutting, uh, with, like with everything canceling that, that really took a lot of my motivation away on playing. Um, so I spent the past year kind of reformatting things because I had I got my master's in 2019. So I've been out for two years now. Um, and I had a lot of reflection time this past year just centering around, you know, my like mental concepts of playing and why I play. And there was a lot of like guilt behind it. Um, like, you know, when you're in school and there's a lot of, you feel you have to play because you have to sit right. in a practice room for so many hours because, um, so I forced myself to take a lot of time off to rework those habits. Um, so now, now that the book is coming out, um, this summer, I've spent a lot of time coming back to the horn, um, and making sure that it's from a place of, I want to play and not just, I feel this guilt if I have to. Um, so honestly, this summer has been a lot of just a lot of fundamentals, whether that's written down things. I haven't done a structured warm up because I'm trying to rebuild the healthy habits and not get back into a rut of how I was before. So I'm, I'm treading very lightly. Um, but it's been a lot of long tones, a lot of lip bends, a lot of things to make sure I'm putting sound first and getting the sound I want and not just feeling I have to play the hard stuff because that's what I was doing before I took time off. Um, so it's been weird because I've never had this much time off, like without gigs and without things. But I think it's been really good for myself to take this time to rework my habits and make sure. So then, you know, when the book comes out or when we're putting these recordings out and I go back to live lecturing and, and performing, um, that it's in a much better mental space, which I feel if I'm in a much better mental space, that's going to come across in my sound. Um, whether or not I have the endurance like I did before, um, I care a lot more and I know that, you know, I'm, I have all of these healthy physical and mental habits. Walt Johnson, and this is about your concepts of sound. And as you were talking about 
uh, being a lead player and, and kind of having that that Gazo peel the paint kind of sound. Uh, yeah, just what what are your approaches to not only the type of sound that that you produce, uh, but but ways that people can can approach uh, the very types of sound that that trumpet can produce, and uh, you know maybe some some little little tips on sound well, I, I one time I did a uh, Bob Elsevier wrote and was going to produce a Walt Johnson album and he we had a session over at A&R Records and uh, he they had three microphones on me and what I wanted at the time was what it sounds like to me in my head what I'm hearing while I'm playing trumpet in my head that's the way I wanted it to sound and they they were able to mix those between the three microphones and get that balance and it, it sounded really fat and uh edgy fat and warm those are good adjectives you know um, <clears throat> and that's that's what I, I go for and and of course uh when you're playing uh, tv films i had to have a dark sound and i remember uh, going into bob reeves mouthpiece guy and doc severson was in there he's always in there he was all you know and uh <clears throat> And I asked Bob, I said, can I try out some mouthpiece? I'm doing a lot of TV films that I need a darker sound. You know, it's something that would give me any, he's lined up 10 mouthpieces in. Of course, I had mine in there, my Colicchio that I played for all my life. And uh, so I played all of them. They turned their back and they, well, number one, number two, number, and the one that sounded the darkest to them was the one that I've been playing for 50 years, man. So, so it, you know, it's, it's the shape of you put your, you know, I, I tell people like when you didn't bring your flugelhorn, the trumpet can become a flugelhorn. You know, you can kind of shape the sound, and you know what I'm saying. It's constant. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, and you add a little bucket mute if you want, but you know, it's uh, I don't know. It's just that's concept. Yeah. Brad Mason. Well, I think equipment is is a huge. Uh, having the right equipment for the job that you're going to go to is a huge huge uh, important thing to, to have um, the right trumpet and the right mouthpiece for the job that you're going to do um, I, uh, I I stay on the same exactly I play GR mouthpieces and um, I love their mouthpieces and I have exactly the same cup diameter uh, of three different mouthpieces but I switch with the different depths depending on the sound that I need um, it's about, I think, having the correct sound for the situation that you're in. Um, also, if, if I can for a second, I'll show you this. This is BAC Maverick trumpet that I helped design with BAC. And the concept of this horn was that I wanted a horn that I could change from being dark to bright. Um, so I can play in a jazz quintet and then have the same horn and play lead in bs and t on it so the concept was let's come up with a horn that we can uh, change and, and manipulate the sound on not the not the way it feels but keep this the way it feels the same but let's change the sound so we came up with the maverick model of uh, over at bac in kansas city and we have interchangeable lead pipes here uh, inside the sleeve here unscrewable lead pipes where we keep the dimensions the same so the horn sound uh, feels the same sorry but um, 
the lead pipe, uh, the lead setup is made of uh, nickel silver, nickel silver lead pipe, and then also change out the tuning slide, nickel silver tuning slide. So it's super bright and responsive, the horn right now. Uh, you put your lead mouthpiece in here and it sounds really bright. Now, then over here I have copper. This is a copper lead pipe. I'll put the copper lead pipe into the horn with the copper tuning slide. Copper tuning slide right here. Changes the horn drastically now to a much darker sound. So I think having, having, the, um, having the idea of matching the right sound for the gig is important. Um, I think gone are the days where one person plays the same mouthpiece and the same trumpet on everything they do. I don't think that, because with, with the demand on us to, to do so much nowadays, is, is much greater than it was. I don't think that's feasible anymore. I think we have to have and always think about the right equipment for the job that we're going to. Yeah. So if you're going to a, if you're going to a church gig, you're going to play a different horn, different setup than you are going to play lead in a big band or a horn section. Or if you're going to play a jazz quintet gig, you're going to play a different setup purely based on the sound and how you want to, to uh, the horn to sound and yourself to sound. You know, so that was the concept with the with the BAC Maverick uh, was to have a trumpet that I used to play. I played a Taylor uh, trumpet for my my jazz gigs, and then I'd have a Bobby Shoe Z. Both great horns, and I'd just switch between the two. But I couldn't take both horns on the road with me, and a flugelhorn. It just became so. I said I, I need a trumpet that I can do both and switch the switch the actual uh, sound of it with. So that's that's what we ended up coming up with uh, in Kansas City with BAC. But so that to answer your question, I think it's important to have the right equipment for the right gig. Bottom line, that's it. John Kaplan. One of the things that strikes me the most is that people don't think that much or don't always think about which trumpet player are they hearing the most themselves by a lot, by a huge amount, most people. Um, they're hearing themselves from behind the bell through the cone, the bone conduction in their skull. Like it's not even necessarily that good representation of how you yourself sound, you know, the, the impression we have of ourselves. Um, and so that became really apparent to me when I took my first lesson with Professor Butler, which I took before I actually was at Rice. And she was, she said many things, that groundbreaking, uh, unbelievable, helpful things that she taught me. But one of them was, Honestly, if you want to improve your sound, you have to just find a sound model that you love and listen to it nonstop. <laughs> like, wait, like walking to and from your car, in the car, when you're walking between classes, when you're just sitting around. Like, make it a habit to listen to the players that sound the way you want to sound. That's really the only way. Because um, if you can't recreate something you haven't heard, you could do it accidentally, but you would never notice it and hone in on it if you did. Um, so having an extremely, extremely strong influence from a few players can make a huge difference. For me, at that time, uh, I started listening to Bob Sullivan, uh, who I wasn't super familiar with yet, but he has several amazing trumpet albums, former member of the New York Philharmonic and Cleveland Orchestra, now the principal trumpet of the Cincinnati Symphony. And he has one of the most gorgeous sounds I've ever heard. I mean, it's not just how he played, his actual sound, the vibrations of his lips, but also like his 
how he engages his vibrato and phrasing and uh, oh my god i was just in love when i first heard it and so i was like fine i'll just listen to a ton of bob solomon i had both of his albums and on a big playlist on repeat uh, another one was james markey yeah bass trombonist i know right but he has such a beautiful way of playing and he has two albums at least at the time when i was listening uh on bass which is his bass trombone album and i think it's off roads is his tenor trombone album both are next level musicianship extremely high level musicianship and that's what i felt like i needed more of it wasn't just their incredible sounds that are obviously suited for orchestra players since they are them but also their very authentic and um beautiful approach to music making yeah. and flooding their brains with my uh, sorry flooding my brain with their sounds made differences that i could have never practiced i could have never sat in a practice room and and had a note that said sound more like james markey and accomplished anything like only listening to them over and over it, it felt like eventually i couldn't even start my playing day without listening to something from from one of those people of course also you throw in phil smith you throw in tom hooten you throw in chris martin you throw in these other incredible uh orchestral players that are out there today and it was like i had more sound concepts that i even knew what to do with but certainly they all had an impact on how i played and it was just the direct i heard it and so when i go to play it's hard to get it out of my mind it's like it's an earworm it's just stuck in there yeah phil o'neill so how do you how do you teach sound and how do you help people understand how to tailor their sound uh, to get the most beautiful sound necessary for the job that they have before them? Uh, usually through listening, listening, find a player that you resonate with um, and that you like and that you love listening to and listen to them a lot um, and then play, you know, so like I've got one of my students in year 10, he loves the old smaltzy kind of cheesy, um, cheesy stuff. So like, you know, um, the Mendez, um, can't think of it right now, you know, to my mother or, um, trumpeters lullaby. He loves that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, cool. It's like, he'll come to me and go, I really love this style of playing, right? Well, here's your recording of Mendez and we're going to play and we're going to start with, you know, no, to my mother then we'll learn you know and we'll just go through all of the tunes that he that he loves and he'll listen to those a lot because he loves playing them so and then he'll over time of constant listening and constant playing that same stuff he will adapt to that so that's pretty much my my biggest one with sound um in terms of um when you're getting to that more advanced period um normally for sound it's like is the sound good so you want to get rid of any sort of fuzz in the sound um you know i know there are jazz players who love having that fuzz from time you know in that scenario awesome but i'm going back to fundamentals in the beginning it, you create a nice sound nice sound for me has plenty of overtones it's when it's the easiest to play the instrument it's in tune um kind of vibe it has you know overtones you can hear the overtones, you know, and one thing I love to do is I've got this app called tonal energy and you can set it to analysis and you can actually see how many overtones you have in your sound while you're playing. And one thing I love doing, um, when I've got plenty of time is I'll sit there and I'll play my long tones and I'll go, okay, which overtone do I want to hear the most of? And I will manipulate what I'm doing to try and, and, vi and I'll use the visual thing to see what I'm doing and I'll try and get that overtone to get 
uh, to boost higher on my frequency chart sort of thing. And I'll go, okay, do I like that sound? Do I not like that sound? You know, let's try and get a different frequency. What do I have to do to get that frequency, that overtone to boost louder sort of thing? Or, you know, it's a really fun, fun uh, exercise to do when you've got time. But basically when it comes to sound, it's like um, the at, at the very basic level, I find breathe, play just work so one two three breathe play most of my students who get that they they don't worry about the chops they don't worry about setting up they just focus on a good breath in and blowing through the trumpet and then a nice sound kind of happens through that um so that's the basics then it's listening playing playing along uh with recordings playing pieces from the recordings, sort of thing all of that sort of stuff is what I do for sound. And then when you go really advanced, it's like using a, um, yeah, using that, that, uh, that visualization sort of thing and go, which overtones do I want to hear more of on these long, on these notes and try and figure out which ones it is, which frequencies try and boost those frequencies in the overtones to create the undertone sound that you really like sort of thing. Cool. I have to play with that app. You're the second person that's talked to me about that. So I, oh, I don't get to check that. It, it's by far the best tuner metronome app you can get. Like it's so many, there are so many features in there. I don't even use all of them, but like there's a drone in there. So I use drones to help me, um, help me with my hearing, like not like, so my internal pitch sort of thing. So I, like I'll buzz my mouthpiece different uh different scale degrees and chords uh, like sort of thing um with my drone to help me tune for you know both equal temperament and true pitch sort of thing um and i'll play on the trumpet it helps me tune with my ears rather than tune with my eyes and then you can use the visual to confirm whether you're in tune um the metronome functions really good you can set it so that it after x amount of bar, uh, bars you can change to different time signatures then you can set it to change like increase speed incrementally for you know so you can actually practice time changes sort of thing in different pieces um there's a recording function in it there's the overtones different yeah um one that i pretty much leave it on for a lot of my practices, the sound wave. So you can actually see the shape of all your notes. You know, am I trying to aim for square notes? So you can say, go, right, I want square notes. So I'm bap, bap, bap. And you can, you get that visualization. It doesn't lie. You know, recordings yeah. never lie. And to have that instant feedback of what I'm actually putting out, um, you know, is that's really cool. So, you know, that's so many features in that one. Tonal energy can't recommend it enough. And I think like, it's like five US dollars or something, you know, probably even cheaper. It's like seven, seven dollars Australian or something. Um, you know, where are you going to find a tuner for that price? Yeah, absolutely. Rich Cohoon. Um, the, let's see where this one goes. So the, the thing is, I, that's really interesting. I, as I spoke, I've spent some time talking with acousticians about sound. I mean, I say that I've, I've also spent a lot of time talking with Mike Barkley about sound because he's, you know, I've got one of his microphones and he's always on about the placement um, for the very reason that I'm about to mention. And there's that is sound, that sound has shape. So when we think about um, the trumpet sound as being a composite of the fundamental pitch and all of its overtones, um, it's the overtones that travel. 
because the, the the lower pitched sounds tend to be round and they surround us and that's why it sounds wonderful when we're in a uh, we're in a two by two meter by two meter practice room with the biggest mouthpiece money can buy. It sounds fantastic, but actually, if you were making that sound in a concert hall, your audience a hundred feet away aren't really going to hear it. You'll be buried in the cello section, you know. Um, and so, to me, the you know, I I really tend to avoid words like bright and dark, though really we are just using metaphors all the time. I want to talk about resonance and projection. And so um, projection can come from having great articulation, but that doesn't help you on a long note. Um, but yeah, essentially I want sparkling sound. I, I often, I have justified using smaller mouthpieces than are accepted in polite society by, um, by saying that when I'm playing first trumpet in an orchestra, I will be there with a B flat trumpet and a a mouthpiece that most people think is very small, but the sound I'm trying to make is like that of an E flat trumpet, or um, because that's what will be heard out the front anyway, even if I were to use something more accepted, you know, in that sort of situation. So it's just, for me, it's all about that, um, you know, it's about resonance and projection and, and not bright tone, a sparkly tone. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a, I, I love that idea of thinking about resonance and projection as opposed to, uh, you know, the brighter dark. So that's, yeah, yeah I, I like that. That's a, that's a great, uh, great little shift. Larry Merigliano. I think it is important to educate yourself to what a good sound is. Uh, one of the best uh, online programs for teaching that I've ever seen comes from Ronald Rome and the Rome teaching, what's the name of their institute there? And he's got a, a, a thing where you, you play, you hear his beautiful sound, and you copy that beautiful sound. It's a great program for success, taking baby steps as we talked before. Check that out. Um, Ronald Rome, the, the Rome uh, Institute. I think it's called the Rome Academy. Yep. For mm -hmm. trumpet. Really good stuff. But the important thing is that we know what the sound is going to be. Harold Mitchell said this. He said, know before you blow or think before you stink. You've got to have a good concept of what a sound is before you can make a good sound. You know, and a lot of times we'll get a student in that doesn't have a good concept of sound. We have to educate them to what that is. They've got to hear it. They've got to memorize it. And they've got to try and copy it. Students always sound like their instructors or their teachers. So it's important for us to give them a good example so that they can copy it. And just the act of copying that good sound automatically puts the body in good form because you, the, the sound is your guide. By the way, it was not, um, uh, that was Harold Mitchell who said that first. Bill Adams studied from my teacher, Harold Mitchell. And that's where that phrase came from. The sound is your guide. That's all Harold Mitchell. You know, you, you, find that, that sound and that puts you in the right position and the right coordination. So you've got to have a good idea what the sound's gonna be before you can produce it. And once you do produce it, you, you memorize it because now you're finding the right muscular coordination. Stephen Cunningham. So just, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the things that you do, particularly as an educator of, uh, of young musicians, what are some of the things that you do to help them to create a clearer concept of sound and, and maybe some practice concepts that you give them? Um, I play for my kids all the time. 
like live in person. I play. Um, I'll play uh, records so everybody can hear it, like on the pieces that we're working on and how they're like, I wouldn't say supposed to sound, but just giving them an idea of what what the goal is. Um, just something to strive for. Um, if if you and Chris Gecker is huge on this. If you don't have, you know, something to draw from that inspires you in terms of listening, like what what are you shooting for? Yeah. So that I I man, I always play for my kids because they're like, Dr. Cunningham, we sound so much better when you play with us. And you know, I'll put the match you know I'm on and I'll sit there and play with them and direct at the same time sometimes depending on like what's going on <laughs> but yeah that's that's what sound is everything that's if they don't know what it sounds like how they how they gonna do it yeah yeah um so who like you know you were you're talking about you know obviously working with with uh Rex and Chris and I'm, I'm sure they're very influential on on you in terms of your development but uh who are some of the other players that that have uh you know, or that a part of your profile, your sound profile. I I love players who are crossovers. Um, and they just, they, it seems like they can just play any style that they want to. Uh, but I, I I love specialists as well. Um, my biggest uh, is Shaw Jones. Uh, just. I got to work with Shaw Jones like in person. He he was the guest director for uh, the Mid Atlantic Collegiate Jazz um, Ensemble. I, I did that when I was a grad student at, at UMD, and he was the guest director, man. And I just got to hang out and, and talk to him. And I, I don't know if he remembers me, but man, I, I learned I learned so much from him, and he he inspired me. And just his ability to, he's so disciplined with his practicing um, and just being able to play whatever, what he wants to do, whatever he wants. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. So he's, he's the biggest influence on me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Man. You could pick a whole lot worse than Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah, he, he, and I got live. Oh my gosh, that he, was. I, I li- he was his, his one of his records was one of the first jazz records I listened to, and then hearing him live, man, it was it was crazy. Vaughn Nark on the trumpet. I the, the the best word I can use is commanding. I wanted to be commanding. I wanted to be centered. Yet I want there to be some body around the note. I want it to have some edge, but not all edge. There are some trumpeters who are all edge. That's their sound. And if that's what they want, then that's it. Our sound is our fingerprint. It's everything. For me, I want it centered. I want it to be body around it. And I want it to be commanding. The, the flugelhorn is darker, fatter. It's going to be more lyrical. I've played a lot of high notes in my life, but in the end, I'll probably be remembered more as a flugelhorn player than a trumpet player to a certain extent because uh, 
I've recorded some things I'm exceptionally proud of, things like Bridget, uh, other ballads, uh, other medium tempo things. I just hear the flugelhorn is wonderful. I, I make love to it more than I attack it. I do use the upper register sometimes for dramatic effect, but I don't overdo it. And one clinic I did many years ago, it was someplace out in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. And some young boy comes up to me and he says, Mr. Nark, can you, can you play the end of Bridget for me? Well, I go to an E flat above double high C on the end of Bridget on the flugelhorn. And I would never have done this for another person. But when I looked at the innocence in that kid's eyes, first of all, he knew what he was talking about. And I saw where his heart was coming from. I took the horn right out of the case and I did the best I could to, to quote that line for that little boy. And I came pretty damn close to the valve trombone for me is about incisiveness and it is about edge. And I love the baritone horn for the thickness and the beauty of what it's capable of doing. So I want to give the audience four different colors. And if I'm, if I'm being true to myself, every human emotion that we're capable of from high to low to middle so that I'm not, Hitting anyone over the head with too much extroversion, but I'm not playing so introverted that I lose people as well. Just all get our emotions out of the horn, all of them, high, low, middle. Oh man, that that's good stuff. That's good, and I, I have to say, man, I, I definitely do love your flugel horn. So it, it's like butter. Estella Aragon. Get an interface. Don't get a USB microphone. Get an interface and hook it up separately with an XLR cable. That's going to make a big difference. Ah, yes, yes, yes. That's, uh, in, you know, that's why, you know, Barkley mics are so good. So you can, uh, you can get one of these nice high quality, uh, ribbon microphones and you'll sound great on your lessons and, and in your recordings as well. Uh, so for, uh, in terms of like, uh, the, your, your concepts for, for trumpet sound, um, what are like what what's one of the most common uh the common suggestions that you give out to people uh for you know making making their trumpet sound like a beautiful trumpet well i mean space has a lot to do with it you know so if you're super echo like my my office is actually really echoey so when i record i have to lay down blankets everywhere um so to just you know make sure that that you have that to have a good a good microphone and have a have a blue uh, spark microphone here with an interface and just test it out. You know, it, it might take you the whole day, literally, it might take you the whole day to find the sweet spot, but put your microphone in somewhere around the center of your space and then start messing with the gain and proximity to the mic. For me, it works much, much better to be far away from the mic with like a mid gain setting than if I was closer with a lower gain setting. That makes it sound really too too uh, too poppy, right? And then trumpet gets very loud, like thirty-eight or forty decibels or whatnot. I think it is. It's very very loud. So if you're too close, you're, you're going to be spiking a lot. Um, so for me, it's always worth to just get a little bit further away uh, to find the sweet spot. But honestly, it's just all about experimentation. Be prepared to record about a hundred different you know ditties that that day. Do 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 do. 
just do that a hundred times from a hundred different spots and you'll find the right one. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Well, that wraps up this special episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And more importantly, I hope that you learned something useful. Please make sure you subscribe, like, and share, and do me a huge favor. Please support our sponsors. Barclay Microphones, world-class microphones on a working-class budget. Robinson's Remedies, products to repair and renew your chops. And Venture Mouthpieces, offering a revolutionary approach to the design and production of your perfect mouthpiece. And make sure you use the code TRUMPETGURUS21 to receive 10% off your order. So thanks for joining me, and thank you for supporting in growing the Trumpet Gurus Hang family. I promise to do my best to continue bringing you great conversation with the best and brightest that the trumpet world has to offer. And as always, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Uh -huh.